Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a show dedicated to the ways tech and innovation are making the world a freer and more prosperous place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko. I'm joined by Will Duffield and special guest, Zach Graves from the Lincoln Network. Thanks for coming on the show, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me. And Ryan Radia, the Senior Policy Counsel at the Lincoln Network. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Happy to be here. So today I thought we'd talk about something that's very much in the news. It's very much of the moment. I think starting early 2018 is when it first kind of showed up on my radar. Complaints about anti-conservative bias online, on social media. And so I'd like to dig into hype versus reality, dig into the different forms that that takes, and just have a conversation about this concept. Because whether or not it's something that tech policy folks spend all that much time talking about. And I'm not sure we actually do spend as much time on the issue as we do on other subjects. It's something that's very much in the minds of ordinary conservatives around the country. The idea that the big tech companies are conspiring to shut out conservative voices. So why don't we start with uh, forms? Like, what, How is this showing up? Or at least how are the allegations of this context showing up? Yeah, Zach. So, I mean, I think it's important that it's not just sort of your average conservative activists, but it's also, you know, a big topic in a lot of recent congressional hearings with Republican policymakers in both the House and Senate who are mm. pretty riled up about this idea that, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or even Google search or Google News being sort of, you know, structurally biased against conservatives. I think this draws a lot out of the same tropes in the sort of conventional media bias narrative that has mm -hmm, been mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form in the conservative movement for a long time, and that it's been sort of applied to the the tech industry in particular, because I think the, the big tech companies are seen to be sort of bastions of, you know, progressive liberal thought. Uh, if you look at, you know, San Francisco, you know, about 10% voted for Donald Trump in 2016. So it is like hard to argue it's not a very liberal place. And so... I think the, the, the jump that people are making is they're saying these big, powerful platforms, you know, have, you know, complete control over a lot of the stuff we, we do to express ourselves on the internet now or how, you know, information is filtered down to us that we, we use on a day to day basis. And since they're a bunch of liberals, therefore, you know, maybe they're trying to conspire against us. And I think that's the, that's the theory they, they have here. And this has come out in a number of different specific expressions. Well, that, that suspicion, um, that, cultural belief about those who make the rules or write the code is paired with a certain lack of transparency on the firm's part, but also a certain level of ignorance amongst users and policymakers. Um, and I think that's often the, the nexus of this. You get a result you don't like. You perhaps don't receive the views you expect that your op-ed or YouTube video ought to. And because you aren't quite sure how all of this works and it does seem pretty opaque, then there's a lot of room within that uncertainty for perhaps conspiratorial thinking about what's going on. The technical term for this uh, from uh, the medical field is the nocebo effect. So folks heard about the placebo effect, like where you ascribe positive benefits to something that didn't actually cause. There's no causal relationship. So, you know, sugar pill solved my cancer or, or magnets or copper bracelets or whatever, right? The nocebo effect is the flip to ascribe negative outcomes to something that didn't actually cause those negative outcomes. So the idea that, well, look, the Twitter auto-populate field, when people start putting in my name, it doesn't auto-populate with my name, but it auto-populates with someone who I don't like on the other side of the political spectrum. Ergo, 
this must be a negative outcome directed at me rather and than – one side is hyper-conscious of this, I think, in a large part because their internet pundits matter more to them as a movement. Conservatives are more concerned and more ready to recognize bias where it may or may not exist. Thinking of that, that auto-populate issue last summer with Twitter, that was something that did not merely affect conservatives. All of the Chapo boys didn't show up in uh, the drop-down list either. But Nancy Pelosi isn't looking out for those guys. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. She'd rather they went away. <laughs> Ted Cruz is pretty concerned about Diamond and Silk or whoever else you think of within that right-wing YouTube ecosystem. So I think like the conservative movement in general is very sensitive about this topic. They've seen, you know, conservative speech, you know, the, the sort of what the boundaries of what is sort of acceptable speech has been shifting. Um, they, they've had to sort of be on the defensive and in sort of campus speech contexts for, you know, a while. They, you know, they've been losing on a lot of the sort of culture war issues, uh, and they're worried, I think, about these becoming no longer acceptable in the sort of digital town square uh, to, to talk about. I think it's also particularly concerning for, you know, Republican members in the House since they rely a lot. You know, they have to run for re-election every two years. They have to, you know, rely on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, all of these platforms to get their message out, to run ads, to go defeat their opponent. And if they think... You know, the guys back in Menlo Park are trying to rig it against them. I mean, that's a real thing to worry about. Whether that's a justified fear is another conversation. And it's worth noting that activists of all stripes often have frustrations that their speech is being targeted by these platforms. It's not just conservatives. However, the Activists who aren't conservative are less likely to attribute decisions to block their content to an underlying political motivation. So as an example of this, the Black Lives Matter movement often finds some of its activists having their posts taken down. There's a recent example of a black woman who posted white men are so fragile as a comment on a story about Liam Neeson's experience trying to find some, someone who was black to assault. The distinction is that when those who are conservative are the subject of having their speech taken down, they are likely to attribute it to some underlying conspiracy as Zach mentioned. Now, with respect to the nocebo effect in many of these situations – when speech is taken down for a reason that is unrelated to the political views, the conservatives tend to believe that it's their politics and even those who aren't conservative might think that. An example is the anti-abortion movement often uses fairly graphic imagery to try to persuade people not to get abortions. So there have been various campaigns that have been the subject of takedowns and the, the assumption is that that's because – these platforms are vehemently uh, pro-abortion where where they just might not want graphic content. Now, this isn't unique to the right. An example is when Elizabeth Warren recently uh, paid for a campaign ad calling for the breakup of big tech. Facebook for a time removed it based on the perfectly plausible explanation that they gave later on that it was the use of Facebook's trademark logo in the ad that they don't approve of. And it may well be uh, and likely is that Facebook would take down that ad in any context, it's well, just in this context, good, it looks good reason bad. for Facebook to do so if you're concerned about graft and manipulation on the platform. If someone bills their new multi-level marketing scheme as endorsed by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg yeah, yeah. in an ad on the platform, 
This isn't something that Facebook wants to go on and takes us back in some ways to the legitimacy or the question of whether Facebook is a legitimate moderator of its own platform. And increasingly on the right, I see a rejection of that, a belief that, well, this is Facebook's property. They nonetheless owe some broader duty to moderate it in one fashion or another. It's been suggested um, uh, to both your points that uh, there are groups that in a sense have weaponized this distrust and are using people's uh, kind of lack of understanding of how the platforms work to manipulate the system to generate false positives for for discrimination. So like with the Warren example, it's been mooted. This is alleged that uh, her campaign staff might have known and admit whether they did or not. You can imagine a politician saying, I'm going to violate the terms of service knowingly. And so I can turn a hundred dollar campaign ad purchase into the equivalent of thousands and thousands and thousand dollars of media attention when it gets taken down. And I'll say it's for the reason, not the actual reason. I'll say it's because they're against my campaign. They don't like my politics. Um, so whether or not Warren, I'm not, I'm not going to say Warren's campaign knew that though it's been, it's been mooted online, but that's a rational strategy. It's a but rational whether strategy. Or not she did that a story that she's running at to break up Facebook on Facebook is a good story. The story that Facebook is trying to stop or proving her point is an even better story. Well, and she afterward uh, fires off a tweet. You know, it's it's terrifying that that these firms have the ability to determine the bounds of debate in this country. Yeah. And yet her complaint and the fact that it was so well covered and discussed on legacy media in print and on indicated that her premise that these firms are capable of yeah. controlling the bounds of debate was rubbish. So it's possible for there to be lots of not good faith uh, conversation. So, and you can even imagine this too. Imagine a pro-life group purposefully using the most uh, visceral imagery it can, knowing that it'll get blocked on the grounds of using the imagery and not, be, but then complain. I mean, again, it's this happened uh, possibly with the unplanned movie, which is big in the kind of. Uh, new Christian right well, that circles. Was, that was a separate issue. It's the, a separate uh, issue. The account holder there had previously in a linked account been banned such that the unplanned account, when it started getting a lot of traffic, right. was understood as a successful ban evasion attempt rather than uh, anything with regard to the actual content. But where does the publishing? Where does the conversation go, though? It doesn't go towards well. This is a relatively narrow technical uh, violation of the rules of service. It's no. This is because the big media, big social media, doesn't want this anti-abortion story to get out there, right? And it seemed like they had some kind of a bot configured to sort of unfollow people who tried to follow them, uh, which also would have violated the terms of service and seems to have no other purpose other than ginning up. Press and, and again, whether or not these particular situations that's true of, we should expect to see that style of strategy well, in the future. I mean, I would be careful about writing off all of the the people who think there's a grievance here as people who are you know trying to you know get free earned media. I think the bulk of, I mean, I, I do think it is a sort of a mainstream conservative view now that this is happening and that bias is real and it's something we should be concerned about. It goes back to a fundamental misapprehension as to how these platforms may legally govern themselves. And it's something that you see sure. both in not right wing, but mainstream left of center media depictions of how CDA 230, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the kind of bedrock intermediary liability pr 
protection or provision. Um, well, how how about we go to where you're, you're taking this, Will? Um, and Zach, flesh out what you're saying and then why don't you take us in that the section 230 kind of direction. Yeah. So this gets into sort of what the you know po- desired policy responses are. But I mean, first I, first I think it's important to, to distinguish – you know, criticizing them from a, like, this should be illegal perspective mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, what the normative stance of a Facebook is, right? Like, criticizing Facebook and saying you, your norms for speech ought to be different is a perfectly reasonable thing to do for conservatives. And maybe you think they're, you know, too risk averse about, you know, the kind of abortion related imagery you can put on there or, about, you know, what you can say about, yeah you know, how you can describe immigrants. And you can go look up, I mean, Facebook is somewhat transparent about their uh, policies these days. You can go look up, you know, a lot of their guidance on the internet and about what they can do, what you can do and what you can't do. And other platforms, I think, are a little bit more ad hoc. And I think there's probably a fair criticism that, you know, some of the high profile people they banned or suspended were for likely political reasons from pressure from different groups. Um, or certainly at least just not explained very well with reference to their own policies. Right. And Facebook has always been concerned about becoming an arbiter of truth, but in not wanting to open that can of worms, it seems sometimes they fall back upon other explanations for bans that are essentially driven by right. someone's continual spreading of misinformation. Like Facebook hasn't done themselves any favors in how they've handled a lot of things <laughs> it's safe to say. lately. And, you know, people tend to be very critical of Twitter, um, but Twitter is actually like pretty permissive about the kinds of people they let on their platform. And it seems like most of the complaints about people who are like permanently banned were doing bad things, whether that's being, you know, inciting harassment or racial slurs or other things. There was this article, um, there's a study from the website Quillette that they purported to do a rigorous study of people, everyone ever banned on Twitter who was high profile and sort of had to generate a news story. And there are a couple other criteria um, you know, and they said these people, these are the ones who were high profile who voted for Donald Trump, and here's the ones who weren't. And you know, it was like 95 percent, you know, people who voted for Trump, you know, are the ones out of the banned list. But they published this data set on the internet, and I emailed them about it. And if you look at it, it's like not who you'd consider like rank and file or mainstream Republicans. It included the American Nazi party. Right, that's the, <laughs> that's the punchline here. It had literally. Yeah. <laughs> A who's who of neo-Nazis and alt-right and conspiracy peddlers. And maybe there's a sort of very libertarian norm about speech where you say, well, we don't agree. These people are bad, but, you know, platforms ought to allow them. And, you know, think, you can think that if you want. But my perspective is that Twitter has an interest in providing, like, a quality experience on its platform. And having a bunch of neo-Nazis, you know, going on about, you know... Not a quality the stuff experience they go on about is not a quality experience. <laughs> you need to have some kind of moderation purely for like an editorial function. Like imagine like Reddit if there was no upvoting and downvoting or just like go to the a YouTube comment section. Like these are not quality experiences and, and you know, places like Twitter and Facebook try to curate a, a more quality experience for you by their nature and that involves you know, value judgments about what quality is, yeah. right? But if if at the baseline you believe that some publisher platform distinction matters in creating the legal immunity that these uh, companies have with respect to user content, if you believe that any 
editorial function renders them liable for user content or pushes them towards some First Amendment standard, then any moderation will seem illegitimate to you. And I think it's that misapprehension which drives a lot of these complaints. And that's, I mean, and you use misapprehension. I mean, you're playing devil's advocate there, right? I'm not. No, I think perhaps among like Ted Cruz and the like, it's uh, willful. But if you look at what rank and file conservatives get both from Fox News and and Vox, unfortunately, the no, other I day. I, was, I mean, the Washington Post. They'll too, have this. Where it was Megan McArdle who yeah. who was you know repeating an an erroneous interpretation of the law and what the law means. And this has been pretty popular in some like right wing circles to repeat these talking points. I'm not sure where exactly they came from, but you know, I think it's a lot of the someone's going to read a dissertation on that. Yeah, you know, people like yeah. Ted Cruz and some others, and. This gets into the sort of idea of, okay, we think there's this problem of the conspiracy against conservatives on these big platforms and they're big and evil and have these gateways. And you, this is where you see Tucker Carlson converging with Elizabeth Warren in a very scary way. And therefore, government needs to step in and, and do something about it. And one of the, the remedies purportedly is weakening or altogether gutting CDA 230, I believe the... So I want to explain that for audience. Congressman, yeah. Congressman Gomert wanted to do mostly away with it. He wanted everything to be presented in precise chronological order, which would make uh, <laughs> your your Google searches really fun. Well, Twitter used to be in chronological order and they changed that and most people have kept the current plat- uh, organization of tweets where they're organized by the level of interest as opposed to when they came first. One c- proposal that hasn't been fully flushed out but that uh, is a good example of how some would conservatives would change Section 230 is Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri has suggested that for intermediaries to be uh, protected from the content of their users, even when they engage in some moderation, they would have to be neutral platforms. That is, they would have to treat content in a, in a way that uh, doesn't favor one ideology over another. Yeah, it, that's that's of course the that's the the nut there. Um, well, and it, it's it's problematic too because you. Why don't we go back for a second? So Section 230 for our listeners, uh, we say 230 in this room and everyone's like, oh, we immediately know what that means. Uh, Communications Decency Act in the 90s, this is a particular clause of that act. And what it says is that uh, online platforms can't be indemnified. They can't be sued for content that they're – or they can't be held liable, uh, uh, criminally liable or civilly liable for content that their um, users post to the platform. And that is regardless of whether they are – there is no distinction in there whether they're a platform or a publisher. So this whole conversation about, well, once they start editorializing, once they start choosing some content to promote some content not, they're no longer a, a neutral platform. They're now a publisher. Therefore, they're not covered under 230. That's not real. That's not in the text of the of, of Section 230. Back in the 90s, you had a series of cases, one in which – an internet service provider, AOL, I believe, lightly moderated or didn't really moderate the contents of a forum at all. And as such, when someone sued them, they weren't found to be liable. So in in the wake of Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy, other services felt that to engage in any moderation, to try to improve the user experience, to filter out pornography, whatever it was – would render them liable and it was something that for reasons of uh, risk avoidance, they couldn't do. So 
in order to both allow these firms to grow, to provide these services at scale when they couldn't preview every user comment, and also to allow them to do their best to try out new strategies in keeping their platform free of whatever it was their users didn't like. Um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is part of a broader omnibus telecoms bill, both on one hand prevented these firms from being liable for user-generated content so long as they didn't help to create Except it. at the federal level. Right? Yes. Yeah. And for copyright. But as long as they didn't create it, they weren't liable for it. And two, that they couldn't be sued for their moderation actions, even if it took down what would have been considered constitutionally protected speech if the government were the one doing it. Right. I mean, the irony is it's it was expressly designed in part. One of its purposes was to expressly allow platforms to moderate. So the thing people are complaining about is the polar opposite of what section one of the the driving impulses of Section Two Thirty. And this today. was back in the nineties when both the left and right were organized together around preventing children from listening to rap music and, and playing and that violent sort of video thing. games. So this right. is and the rest of all of the other sections of. The CDA were things you probably wouldn't like, don't like very yeah. much, right? It was all big chunks that struck down in court. I think, yeah, it was all unconstitutional, uh, except for this bit. Except for this bit, which was designed separately as a compromise um, that Wyden and some others sort of negotiated in smartly. Which is, I think, telling. Uh, like uh, you mentioned, Josh Hawley, Ryan, um, but Ron Wyden has also said that he's kind of open to further carve outs in Section Two Thirty. Um, because I think his support for it was always predicated on the rest of the package back then. So, um, well, I mean, his support, he didn't support the rest of the package. He right? was only 230. He, this was a negotiation tactic to get okay. good stuff into a bad bill okay. that was going to happen anyway. Okay. Interesting. Um, Wyden, Wyden was not at all supportive of, of the other oh. stuff. Well, he's, um, he's since come out recently and said he's yeah, in favor of I mean, carve-outs. He's a strong, I think he's a very, I mean, he's a, he's one of the, the the greatest sort of internet policy senators, I think. Um, and I think he's a realist about this and that he sees there's like all kind of encroachments. We've, we've already set the precedent that we can come in and sort of tinker with this with FOSTA-SESTA. And it's going to happen again. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think just as he was a realist about the original CDA, he's a realist about that this is going to get tinkered with. And, you know, if you're going to do it, do it in a smart way. Um, and like, you know, any any statute should be sort of open to sort of revision and, you know, looking about what its effect was. The, the challenge here is the people that want to go in and gut CDA – uh, don't really understand what that would do. It'd probably do the opposite of what they want it to do. And they want to do it for kind of bad reasons or they're being co-opted by people who want to stick it to the, the companies just or, for or they, for that reason. Or alone. they just don't realize what the benefits of this bill are. Um, for all of the attention paid last week to Paul Joseph Watson, Milo, Alex Jones, and a couple others being booted from Facebook in Wisconsin – the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled in a case called Daniel v. Arms List that Arms List's provision of essentially an online classified service for people buying and selling firearms was also protected under CDA 230. And this suit sought to held them liable for the actions of one user who bought a firearm, was prohibited from doing so, 
purchased it in a private sale, which was it's legal to have private sales. Felons can't buy guns. Um, and if this suit is, had succeeded, something like arms list wouldn't be able to exist if it was seen as outside the bounds of CDA 230's protections. So in th this case, kind of unknown, unnoticed, unappreciated by national media, national conservative media, CDA 230 helped to protect the ability to buy and sell firearms online. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, the the shape of the modern internet would be fundamentally different. And I don't think for the better if it not if not for a CDA 230. Um, it's it really stood a chance that there was a wave of lawsuits. I mean, we mentioned a few of them, but there were um, dozens, if not hundreds of lawsuits working their way through the system at the time that could have strangled internet innovation in the, in the mid nineties, but for two, for 230. So if you, re as you remove those protections, you could, I mean, it runs the risk of of really damaging the the kind of the future shape of the internet today. Like the stuff we take for, we're taking for granted that this exists and we're chipping away at, at 230 protections. Well, I mean, this is something we talked about a little bit earlier with federal privacy legislation. I mean, before Ryan, you came along, Ryan, I mean, you, I think like in general, at least my view is that you don't want all of these sort of internet policy issues to be handled at the sort of by states and municipalities you don't want cities to be able to say you can't have your pokemon go like site here or else we're going to fine you you don't want activist ags to come in and just try and target the you know google for political reasons to try and advance their career and you, you know you want to make it easy for sort of internet platforms to come along and have a like reasonable set of standards to comply with rather than 50 different ones that may or may not be in, in you know compliant you know even like consistent it's just not workable to expect a platform that say facilitates home rentals or arms sales to comply with the local and uh, laws of every jurisdiction but one thing the 230 does is encourages these platforms to engage in some level of moderation of controlling activity that's clearly uh say illegal or otherwise problematic without requiring them to to do everything were it not for this protection Sites might not do anything to protect users from classified ads or transactions that are problematic. So in the context of arms sales, for example, it's it's possible that websites might block selling firearms that are illegal everywhere or in most places. But that doesn't mean that they're liable every single time a sale occurs that's prohibited. In the context of home sales, there might be certain baseline standards that platform sets in terms of whether you have to have, say, a carbon monoxide detector or smoke detector that that doesn't open up the platform to be required to comply with the full uh, spectrum of, of local laws and rules governing home rentals. When we, we, we'd prefer that the platforms do some of this when they want to versus giving them the uh, dichotomy of fully comply with all of the protections or do nothing because many of them will just do nothing if that's the option they have. In in thinking about CDA's two, 230's protection of the ability of new firms to come into the space and innovate and conservatives, perhaps legitimate, perhaps not, concern that at least given the cultural inputs the current set of large social media platforms are predisposed to hold certain biases against them or merely not recognize their cultural signifiers, the language they use and respond appropriately. Why haven't we seen more conservative interest in building alternatives to Facebook, Twitter, etc.? I know we've got 
Gab as a kind of Twitter clone for the dispossessed. Um, there's Full30 as a firearms video platform. But more broadly and especially the deeper down the infrastructure stack we go, the less particularly institutional conservative support there seems to be for creating alternatives. Why is that or is well, there more going on in this space? I mean partly I feel like this isn't really that big of a deal except on some like particular edge cases. Like, you know, people like Richard Spencer may be suspended from Twitter or the American Nazi Party. He's still there. He's on Twitter. Yeah, he's, he, they, they put him back, but there's a lot, there's some of them that were banned permanently. Um, but by and large, like, you know, I hang out in right wing political circles and follow a lot of conservatives on Twitter. And in general, this is not an issue, right? If they were banning, you know, right wing think tank people left and right, I would maybe think about, well, I wouldn't go to Gab, but I would go somewhere that I would be looking at, you know, alternative institutions. But I don't think the demand, the need is really that great. I also think it's hard to make an alternative Facebook, like network effects are hard things to overcome. I think the like business proposition of making conservative Facebook is not a very good one. Well, right? it doesn't need to be conservative Facebook, but merely uncapturable Facebook. Okay. Facebook that doesn't respond to NGOs or like absolute free speech Facebook. Potentially. Isn't that 8chan? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We already have that in the Well and the the absence of a platform like you described that doesn't engage in blocking speech that's protected by the First Amendment, which is to say the vast majority of speech unless it's inciting imminent lawlessness or in some limited cases is false or copyright infringing. The absence of such a platform is a testament to the fact that most users don't really want that. Some certainly do, but they're not willing to give up the fact that they want to be around the majority of other users by being affiliated with a platform like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or Instagram but engages in uh, some degree of moderation. So it's the, the, the desire to have some moderation going beyond the First Amendment and the, the fact that with the exception of those edge cases, as Zach mentioned, most platforms most of the time allow ideologically controversial speech to flow freely if – Users didn't want moderation and they wanted more ideologically extreme speech. We might see a platform emerge and thrive, but so far that hasn't happened and I don't think it will. If I can make a, another point here, um, just drawing on my own, my own, uh, expertise for a moment. So, um, I write about, I've written about the history of the fairness doctrine of, of attempting to guarantee equitable treatment of, 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 the a swath of political views on the radio in the 1960s and 70s. And there's some cautionary tales from that attempt. And it's not completely dissimilar from what Holly is intimating when he talks about view, uh, a fighting viewpoint discrimination. So there's a sense in which it's kind of a, a, a fairness doctrine for the internet age. You can imagine a future with which that's true, in which these platforms are said, are told that if you, you're not allowed to say air only conservative content or host only conservative users, you have to have folks from across the political spectrum, you, you, right? Um, and the problem with this is that even during that conversation over the fairness doctrine in radio, there was this confusion over whether someone has a right to speak or a right to be heard. And there were folks who said, we're putting the fairness doctrine because they'd be said, look, uh, radio station license holders, they have to operate in the public interest. It's not their property. So there's no right to property over a license. It's a matter of uh, right to speech, but not just the right to speech because 
the problem is, is some folks can speak more freely, freely than others. Their views are more congenial to the general population. They're more mainstream. We need to look out for the right to be heard. People who aren't being heard right now, they might speak all day long, but they're not getting on the radio. Um, so this shift from a right to speak to a right to be heard meant limiting the rights of radio stations to air the content they want to air. Instead, it was, let's find, let's assess the community, see who currently feels unheard, and then force radio station license holders to air people from all the communities, right, regardless of how niche they are. And and that ended up being used as a tool to suppress, essentially, conservative media in the end. And now we seem to have stepped beyond that because the audience isn't captive anymore, Then you had a set number of radio stations. People were driving around. That's what they had to listen to. So if you could get on the radio, you had an audience. Now everyone effectively has a right to be heard. It's a question of where. You can videotape yourself and upload it to IPFS and it's there. Um, People seem to be demanding a right to an audience Right. That's the right to be heard. I want this many views. But again, it's beyond a right to, to be heard in in the old radio sense. What's what they meant? They want to guarantee everyone an audience is essentially what they is what they meant by that. But you're right. I mean, it takes the, me a lot of time to listen to everybody. That sounds like a terrible burden for me as an audience. Well, and, and the other cautionary tale is that it's also easy to hijack that process. So it was easy to say, "Hey, look, I just want to guarantee fairness on the airwaves. Who can be against fairness?" But the only people I'm going to go after, I'm only going to criticize stations that air conservative speech, not you know liberal speech. So it was used to shut down conservative broadcasting in the 60s. You can imagine a world in which uh, uh, imagine giving that kind of power over internet uh, internet regulation to I don't know the Trump administration or some future administration. Do you really think that there wouldn't be a temptation to tinker like there was uh, with the radio right in the 1960s? I mean, there's yeah. another, there's another, um, you know, approach that I've heard from people in the administration who, you know, to going to your earlier point, have, have talked about like man, the, like the 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 policy for Facebook that we should mandate is the First Amendment, and they should anything that is like you know within the First Amendment, they have to run it, you know, and that's certainly like, <laughs> and you also see sort of the other side of this where Zuckerberg is talking about. Well, we want to enshrine all of our moderation practices and law. So, and you can see why that'd be convenient for Facebook because they can say, hey, look, don't blame us. This is enshrined in law. This, these are not so, decisions we're making. Yeah. The way the, the ATR is, is currently uh, valuable to them in that they know if, right. if a group shows up on it, they don't get a Facebook account. And that's that. No questions. I mean, I'm going to kick this to Ryan as the, you know, a legal expert, but. What would what would Facebook, where the moderation standard is just the First Amendment, what would that look like? <laughs> so that would look pretty extreme. A lot of people, uh, internet users who might think that that's a good idea in the abstract, may not be fully familiar with the scope of what's protected. I mean, there are limits, uh, things, content that's defamatory, as I mentioned, that incites lim- imminent lawless action. Uh, there's even obscenity, which is uh, content that uh, appeals to a prurient interest. It's been described by Kathleen Sullivan as content that grosses you out but also turns you on. But the fact is that only a small portion of content that uh, most users would consider pretty extreme is actually even debatable on the obscenity clause. Um, depictions of graphic violence, sexuality, um, 
uh, extremely offensive, racist speech, all of that is fully protected by the First Amendment in most contexts. Uh, lying is protected in many contexts. Uh, animal crushing videos uh, depict a speech about soldiers and, and wartime um, activities being maligned, uh, protesting fun- uh, uh, gay weddings, uh, funerals of, uh, of soldiers who died on the battlefield. All of this is protected and a platform that allowed all of the speech, uh, those do exist on the internet and they're not places that a lot of people want to spend time on. <laughs> right. It's understandable that no platform wants to go there, at least no major platform. So the, the underappreciated in my mind or I haven't seen much engagement between advocates of this First Amendment standard, algorithmic filtering and, and surfacing. You know, when you're friends with a thousand people on Facebook and you open that news feed, it doesn't just show you a chronological ordering of the things they have posted. But I'm not sure under a First Amendment standard how even something like the Reddit upvote downvote system or the fact that more of your friends engaged with a post about a party coming up and therefore it would show up at the front of your feed instead of some political post that nobody really liked and how how the application of a First Amendment standard would, would weigh in on those sorts of questions because when we get into de-boosting or, or any of these other mm. – Questions of algorithmic or surfacing bias. Um, it it doesn't seem as though it would have much to say there. So it's interesting to see how the right is like shifted on this, you know, away from all that nonsense free market stuff and towards, you know, the government needs to fix this. But they've also started like adopting a lot of the kind of language and concerns of the sort of far left progressives who've been talking about algorithmic neutrality and algorithmic bias in a slightly different context for quite a while and have a pretty robust literature on it. A good recent example was something, you know, that was elevated in a Trump tweet, um, which was this another, you know, air quotes study of, uh, you know, Google News results and they assigned, I think they searched for Trump and then they assigned the outlets in the first hundred to <laughs> Right wing or left wing, and of course, all the the big ones are left wing. This was the PJ um, Media, the piece? PJ Media one, and you know this this elevated from there to Fox, and then Fox to to Trump, and then they were talking about doing an executive order on it. And anyway, um, but the, the basically what it showed is that they're complaining that why why isn't Breitbart News or some of these other you know the Daily Caller why isn't that showing up right next to the New York Times and the Washington Post and. Well, the the answer is that that's not how search engines work, right? They work by, you know, you know how many how popular they try to gauge popularity and relevance through a number of different Incitation. factors. Yeah, you know, one of the big ones sort of approximates traffic and backlinks, and it's not it shouldn't be a big surprise to anyone who has a sort of minimum technical understanding of this that the big popular sites are the ones on top, right? And, you know, so, the, you know, the, their, their outliers were like the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. And, well, that's because those are big, right? And you can maybe criticize Google for, you know, making an editorial decision to prioritize big established firms, you know, but doing that's news. the editorial decision that our society basically right. makes already with right. respect to the status we accord to these different institutions. So I think if you look at a lot of these sort of bias in algorithms, versions of the anti-conservative bias stories, 
a lot of it's just like not understanding the technical underpinnings of the technology that you're worried about, right? Or, but, or simply resenting it. You would like Google to correct this sociocultural bias well, for you. Here's where you Why want your fairness it? doctrine to come in and say that, well, we need to extra, put extra weight to all of the Breitbart links that come in. And that way we have fair and balanced reporting. It's the question of it's a it's a I mean, fair and balance is the right phrase. Balance is different than fair, actually. So uh, balance just means we're going to, you know, we're going to take a set of a set of issues and we're going to guarantee that there's as many Republicans as Democrat viewpoints, Democratic viewpoints represented. Balance is 50-50, but it turns out there's lots of issues that Americans are not split 50-50 on, right? So does that mean on an issue where 90% of Americans agree, you need to give them only 50% of the, right? Like, And there are some issues where there are more than two viewpoints. Right. We used to think that, you know, there were there was only one viewpoint on are Nazis good. Well, there there actually are more. There's more than one viewpoint on that issue, or things like free trade, uh, where it used to be that many on both sides of the political aisle were broadly supportive. That's not the case uh, right now, of, of course. So the question is, do you give a say airtime or or web space to views based on how popular they are? Uh, is it just a popularity contest or is it based on a baseline threshold of whether a view is considered meritorious and who decides that question? There's no good way of making these ideological judgments that isn't profoundly messy. Uh, and then even when you do try to go down that path, there becomes the question of whether sort of facially neutral policies are having disparate impacts based on different viewpoints. If Twitter has a policy as they do to ban targeted harassment campaigns, well, that may affect a user like Milo who was banned from Twitter more so than it affects a particular prominent uh, speaker on the left. That doesn't mean that Twitter's anti-harassment policy is anti-conservative bias. It just means that some some legitimate policies happen to correlate with conservative or liberal views. But what do you do about policies that or how should conservatives approach policies that do seem on their face political in a sense? If you look to Twitter and its deadnaming policy, um, on Twitter, you can't refer to a trans person by something other than their preferred pronoun. Given that – at least I, I understand conservatism in the United States to in many cases reject the necessity of using those pronouns or of respecting um, that choices to gender, how, how should conservatives understand a policy that prohibits the way linguistically they approach this, this issue? Well, sure. So your example about dead naming is interesting in that it's a policy that is is presumably motivated by a desire to protect people from seeing speech that they will find deeply discomforting and offensive. At the same time, it re does reflect an underlying value judgment that is controversial in political circles, whether you know, whether uh, gender is a social construct and, and, and issues like that, which are genuinely complicated. So when you have a situation where the, the politics and the, the apolitical desire to prevent offense are conflated, it becomes very difficult to disentangle those. So it's, it's, it's not a question that has any, any easy uh, answer and again gets to the, the fact that when any platform is making these value judgments, 
that's going to have some political repercussions. I mean, we we think back to uh, the the a lot of the debates over speech over the airwaves. It was it was conservatives who wanted this the the censorship to occur because they thought that uh, messages were offensive to community values, even though those messages might uh, involve things that that many children uh, perhaps would not want to see. So it's very difficult to disentangle that the, the, the political aspects of a policy from the the apolitical. I want to put a you know a little bit of a, a different approach. I think there's a lot of these examples we can just sort of like knock down easily, and there's a lot of bad studies out there on uh, claiming conservative anti-conservative bias. Um, but I think it's like one I want to say on, from a normative perspective, like following on what you're saying. I I don't think there's like it's irrational to be worried about this, particularly in terms of like you know what the limits of like socially acceptable speech are, how these you know, big platforms sort of like set their policies is something we should have a sort of interest in saying what, you know, where, what ought to be acceptable, what isn't, um, you know, not requiring the government to step in is another issue. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is that, you know, there are a lot of bad arguments for this out there, but I think we should, what we should try to do as people who are maybe a little skeptical of this is to steel man their arguments for them. Cause I think they're going to get there eventually. And I think there are like steel man versions of some of, some of these arguments that aren't easy to sort of like brush off, 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 you know, just on the side, right? Like, I think you could, you know, similar to what some of the left's argument is around sort of AI being biased, you could make similar arguments around, well, Facebook and Google aren't deliberately trying to, you know, go after conservatives, but, you know, they inadvertently do so because of the way they set their algorithms and the like priors of the people in liberal Silicon Valley just sort of seep down. Or the mid and low level sort of moderation people who are making these decisions are given too much power and too little transparency. And since they're all a bunch of liberals sitting in Silicon Valley somewhere, uh, you know, they can use their discretion, you know, like Facebook's trending topics and say, I'm going to, you know, crusade for social justice and downrank this thing that involves, you know, Tucker Carlson and not this other thing. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's hard to sort of debunk those kinds of arguments. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they they do raise like interesting issues. Um that we shouldn't just sort of write off offhand. But I think where we do need to sort of tell our, you know, fellow right-leaning people is that, like, the solutions you're talking about aren't going to do the things you think they're going to do. And that's not really how you should be approaching it, even if you think there's, like, a real issue here. Right. And it's it's possible for the cure to be worse than the than the harm and that than, than what you're treating um, this was true with the fairness doctrine good intentions what it actually ended up doing was promoting the opposite of fairness same could be true with anti viewpoint discrimination legislation if ever it gets to that point where it actually promotes viewpoint discrimination behind the scenes through regulatory capture or some other mechanism um so it's not to say there aren't trade-offs because there are trade-offs that come with this, right? Like there are people who are just ordinary conservatives who might get swept up in an algorithmic sweep for alt-right, you know, white supremacists. That could happen. Have a, a you know your Twitter account suspended temporarily. That is a that's a loss. That's a downside. The question is, does the thing you do to try to fix that? actually prevent that and does it create greater harms that are even worse than that kind of right and, and this is goes to show that we need sort of better sort of policies and standards and governance around this within the platforms not within the government there is this i think you went to that conference that eric, eric goldman ran at santa clara where they developed the been to most the, of them so they developed the santa clara principles and there are a few of these sort of like frameworks out there that sort of suggest best practices for how moderation there decisions should be made recently a quite good 
Brennan and uh, ACLU, CDT, and a couple others uh, put together a it's not First Amendment principles for moderation, but First Amendment principles for governing the internet aimed at Congress, thinking about what the limits are as to their power to police or or alter the private moderation of speech um, out, outside of CDA 230, just uh, writ large under the Constitution. Um, and that you know, even as much as they want to say control foreign misinformation or propaganda, Americans have a right to receive propaganda from from foreign uh, countries if they desire it. You, you, who is it? Lamont, the postmaster general. Um, this gets back to our episode that we did with John Samples, you and I, Will. Um, and that, in fact, this is, I think, a good place to leave this episode. This gets to big questions about governance structures and um, – uh, so I, I think that's where we'll leave it today. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming on the show. Appreciate your time, Ryan and Zach. And for our listeners, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.